Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined live and in person by Brian Palmer Rubin, uh, a colleague of mine at Marquette University, who is the author of Evading the Patronage Trap, Interest Representation in Mexico, which was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2022, I believe. Um, And I'd like to welcome Brian to the podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project, which is really fascinating in understanding what's going on, not only in Mexico, but also in Latin America, in a more contemporary time, thinking about economics and politics and how they operate together or in opposition to one another. Hello, Brian. Hi, Lily. I'm really excited to be here and happy to be talking about this book, which is finally, in this last year, seeing the light of day. And um, a little bit about the genesis of the project. This is one of those books that was a doctoral dissertation. So this was my dissertation at UC Berkeley. Um, but there's a long story that comes before it being my dissertation. Um, I spent, we're going all the way back to my undergraduate time, um, in the early 2000s, the very early 2000s. Um, I've always been interested in organizations, in particular how uh, marginalized populations or what we can think of as non-elite economic actors organize to influence policy. Uh, this has led me to study a whole bunch of a wide variety of different sorts of organizations. When I, when I, when I began, I was interested in sort of ethnic minority groups or marginalized ethnic groups. As an undergraduate, I worked on, um, ethnic groups in Africa. I did, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on the, on the Uganda autonomy movement in Uganda. Uh, and then lived for a couple of years in Bolivia and studied indigenous movement in Bolivia, went to Mexico and, and sort of continued to study indigenous politics in Latin, Latin America. Um, and when I got to UC Berkeley, I found a crowd of graduate students and, and faculty that was also really interested in thinking about these sorts of organizations, not organizations representing non-elite actors. And I just sort of made the switch where now I was focusing on actors representing economic groups. Um, in this case, in the case of the sister patients, small business owners um, and farmers. Um, and, and, and the book focuses um, specifically on the case of Mexico, but I, but I, I work to construct, to put together an argument that I think um, applies more broadly to middle-income democracies. Yeah, and, and you also obviously are fluent in, in Spanish. I've heard you speak with your children and your family in Spanish. And so um, that clearly was an asset um, in doing field research because you did also spend a lot of time 
in Mexico for the work in the book, um, as you also talk about in the acknowledgments. Um, but what you're looking at here, as I sort of am teasing it apart, is that, as you say, that there are economic groups that have been successful in sort of having policies that work for them. And there are other groups, other economic groups that have been less successful in having state policies or regional policies that work for them. Can you talk a little bit about the farmers, the small business groups, the, the political parties and how these things all come together in the sort of overarching framework? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that, I, I love your summary because I think what you just described uh, helps me do this bridge, do this sort of framing that I try to do, or I'm to some degree bridging my work to classic literature on um, what what sort of scholars of American politics have called biased pluralism, right? So anyone who's read um, Dahl's Who Governs or, or, or classic work by Lindblom and others um, is sort of familiar with this idea that the, the interest arena in the United States or interest the, the sort of spectrum of interest groups tends to overrepresent elite economic interests in economic policy uh, when compared with non-elite economic interests. Right? Classically, we think of business versus labor, um, but we can expand that to include groups like you know large agribusiness and small-scale farmers, um, transnational business and, and, and domestic small business, right? You can add lots of qualifiers to that. Um, so the, Lat Lat the Latin American story is sort of interesting most Latin American countries, and Mexico was sort of an exemplary case of this, in the mid-20th century period had systems of interest representation, of sort of ways of representing economic interests, which could be described as corporatists. The C word for those of us who study Latin America and Western Europe. Um, and these corporatist arrangements were based on really strong, stable sort of mass-based working class parties. You are explaining about corporatist <laughs> arrangements um, in Latin America in the mid 20th century. That's right. Yeah. So, so many countries and the biggest, sort of most famous examples of this form of corporatism were Argentina under the Peronist party, Mexico under the PRI, um, also Venezuela and Peru had really prominent labor-based corporatist parties. And these are political parties that formed long-standing uh, intimate relationships with peak-level organizations of labor. Right? These are in some cases sort of modeled on what we saw in lots of Western European countries like Germany, Sweden, France. Um, and the, you know, there's, there was a lot of work in the middle and late 20th century on the texture of these corporatist relationship, what sorts of representation was offered to workers um, in, which, in what way the workers controlled by these political parties through these often coercive relationships. Um, and then sort of by the end of the 20th century, you know, research on economic policy and organized interests in Latin America focuses on kind of the decline of corporatism, the death of corporatism through neoliberal economic reforms. We see that every country in the region coming out of what had had in military dictatorships adopts these liberal economic models where the state withdraws from uh, all sorts of regulation of the economy, subsid subsidizing um, lots of different sorts of economic activity, sells off state-owned enterprises, reduces the size of the welfare state, uh, liberalizes macroeconomic policy, enters into free trade agreements, right? And the idea is now we're in a system where the market determines how the economy is going to be run and not the state. 
And, and so this is what you talked about in the book as the transition period. So this happens as sort of as the, the conclusion of the 1980s. The United States is also in a big deregulatory sort of zone. Um, and so you have the move from corporatist arrangements in a lot of these Latin American countries that had been pretty strong and solid um, to this sort of evolution to more neoliberal, less nationalized, more deregula deregulated situation. Um, and you have two case studies that you're looking at in the sort of latter half of the book with regard to a lot of different kinds of data that you have small farmers, uh, not big agribusiness, but small farmers in rural areas and then small businesses not big corporations, but small businesses, and how they differently operated within the new sort of neoliberal economic climate, but also a changed kind of political climate. Can you talk about that political climate? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you're getting, uh, that's exactly right. And and I think you know, there had been a lot of important work that was done in Latin America, a lot of research, um, and in Mexico in particular, people like Marcus Kurtz. Richard Snyder, Ken Green, lots of books who study the transition itself. This became a, an area of a really big, important interest. And these works were, were really influential on my own. Um, Ken Jablin's done organized business as well. A lot of these people were sort of graduates of UC Berkeley as well, not coincidentally. Um, but what we, what I sort of noticed what, what we were missing or what this book tries to do is say, okay, what came next, right? I don't study the transition. I study the system of business representation after the transition, right? This transition was over 20 years ago. Um, and when I talk about the transition, there's two pieces to it. One is the neoliberal transition, which we've been referring to, this transition in the way economics operates. And the other is a political transition. In the, in the Mexican case, this is a really clear move from what had been a one-party dominant system, a political system that was dominated by a single political party, the PRI, um, which came into power after the Mexican Revolution and won every single election at every level of governments uh, for 60 to 70 years, depending on how you date the, the exact beginning and the end of the PRI's uh, regime. And at the end of the at the end of this period, you sort of see the birth of this relatively stable three-party competitive system in Mexico. Sort of meet the pre the PRI remains alive as a sort of centrist after which persists as sort of a diminished version of itself. The PAN um, challenges the PRI as the center-right sort of pro-business, classically linked to uh, the Catholic Church. This is the part of the PAN had been found in the 1930s, but really um, it ends up being a, sort of a revived version of it, ends up being the party that displaces the pre finally for the presidency in 2000. And you have the DRD, the left-wing political party, counted in 1989, um, which, 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 which sort of challenges the PRI both on the state level and in, in federal elections. I'm trying to, they're opposing an economic model to calling back to the period prior to the neoliberal reforms. And, and so this change in not only the economic sort of operation in Mexico, but also broad, more broadly speaking in Latin America, and then this change in the party system and thus politics um, leads to, as you say, sort of different organizational capacities 
that um, are in some cases to the asset of people in the economy and some places are detrimental to people in the economy. Um, and I'd love for you to start getting into some of these asymmetries because this is also part of what you talk about in terms of where the rural farmers ended up. Great. Yeah. So, yeah. So I see. So there's sort of two pieces to this. One is what happens to organizations? How do organizations uh, exist and, and, and operate in this new post transition period that I'm analyzing, right? Which you can sort of date as the period po post 2000 or so. Um, and then uh, what does it mean for the interests of these particular economic actors that I care about? Um, starting with the organizations themselves, right? So corporatism is a pre the mid 20th century system that had been characteristic of the dominant parties was um, often described as having inducements and the constraints. This is how an important article that my doctoral advisors, David and Ruth Collier wrote, was titled this inducements and constraints. And the idea was political parties or states offered lots of stuff to labor unions that were embedded in corporatist relationships. In particular, most importantly in, the, in corporatism, these political parties or the state helped solve the collective action problem, often by requiring mandatory membership. Right. Labor unions at the union shop, there was something that the state allowed or enforced, and this is what keeps labor unions alive. They can charge dues on all of these people that have to belong to the labor union. Uh, in, in addition to this, right, the state would offer lots of sort of nominations for public office to um, labor leaders. They would be given you know, positions in important, uh, important bureaucratic or ministerial posts and have a say over policy through the formal or informal channels, or sort of the idea behind, behind corporatism. And in Mexican Cape, like in lots of other cases, there was sort of a similar parallel structure for organizations of business. There were business chambers that also enforced mandatory membership, business owners, or representatives of these business chambers played an important role in setting economic policy as well. Always subject, however, to sort of constraints from the state. You know, we have to keep in mind these are states, these are sort of semi or fully authoritarian systems. And so when they think that these less sort of aligned interests are getting out of line, right, if they try to take to the streets in protest or if they threaten to support an opposition party, um, there are some repressive and sometimes violent things that the state could do the crackdown of that, right? So that was the story of the last century, not to dwell too long on the last century. Today, right now, there's a sort of pluralist system, but not corporatist system, but the pluralist system, both the inducements and the constraints are less. They're both relaxed by the lot, right? So the state offers a lot less in terms of subsidy, in terms of regulation to help keep organizations afloat, but it also restrains them a lot less, right? And organizations are a lot more free to align with different political parties, choose the ways in which they seek to make demands, right? They can engage in protest. They can make noise in the media. They can lobby politicians of different political parties. They can hold campaign events. Um, you see sort of a, a proliferation of different sorts of actors, which previously had been considered outsiders of these corporatist relationships. Indigenous actors, extremely poor landless peasants, informal sector workers, neighborhood associations, particularly in poor urban slums. We see it in, in an interest arena or sort of a, an arena of organizations that's much more pluralistic, has a lot, lots of different sorts of interests um, who are now sort of allowed to make demands, 
but it's not so clear that they are able to make demands, right? So they still face this really uh, trenchant challenge of sustaining Larry Jewish organizational capacity, which is, which is sort of finding a way to sustain a large impact. And, and so one of the points that you are making that you also just were talking about in, in the title of your book is interest representation. Um, and this is essentially what you've been talking about is you have more fluid opportunity as an indigenous person in Mexico or as somebody who is growing a unique crop um, as opposed to sort of your basic corporate business type who usually has access because they have more money um, and more connections. Uh, but what you're saying is that the sort of interest representation only goes so far, it seems, because of some of the fragments or leftovers from the corporatist period. Uh, and you talk about this a priori sort of situation for one group that's intact, but not so much with the other group that's intact, I think. Um, can you explain a little bit about what this this kind of idea of interest representation is and how there is more or less success? Sure. So, so interest representation, it's a it's a kind of a wonky sounding term, but it's um, what we can think of it as the process of translating interest into demands, right? So people, all sorts of people come to politics with different sorts of interests. In the case of my book, I'm, re I'm really thinking about economic interests, right? So farmers, they get really concrete. If you're a small scale corn farmer who has just a few acres of land, what are your interests, right? You would like stable and high prices for corn. You would like someone who drives by your farm to buy your corn. You would like an irrigation system so you can water your corn. I um, mean, not suffer droughts. You would like sort of subsidies from the government, crop insurance. Basically, you want a stable and profitable industry for the thing that you're doing. Right. Um, and an organization, if an organization forms to represent small-scale corn farmers, they sort of encounter these farmers with all of these interests and they decide, A, which of these interests are we going to prioritize and B, how are we going to pursue? And that is interest representation. Right. It's the process of an organization decisions and sort of engaging with the state, engaging in participation in that way. Um, what I diagnose in, 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 in looking both at the small-scale agricultural sector and the small business sector is that is this big difference between IADFs are differentiating between two main models of, of interest representation. One is the programmatic model. And the other is the patronage model. Um, the programmatic model of interest representation is the model in which these organizations are making demands on behalf of their sector, right? So this would be an organization of core farmers, right? Maybe a local organization, but oftentimes embedded in a much larger confederation of, 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 of grain farmers or corn farmers that extends across Mexico. Um, and they're pushing for policies that are willing to stand to benefit small-scale corn farmers, right? And this, these are things like let's set, let's get the state government or the federal government to um, introduce price supports. So across Mexico, corn never gets below X pesos per ton, right? Let's get the government to crack down or to, to renegotiate NAFTA to um, keep the U.S. from dumping 
extremely cheap corn in Mexico. Let's get the government to invest across lots of territory and irrigation systems, which are going to make it easier and more profitable for people to grow corn. These are the sorts. Of, these are sort of examples of the kinds of demands that I would classify as programmatic. It's an organization kind of engaging in these policy making processes to make things better for people who belong to an economic sector. This is the sort of programmatic demand making is what we think of when we think of kind of interest group lobbying in the United States, I think. That's what I was going to say. Sounds like lobbyists to me. Uh, we often think of it as, we often think of it as being sort of a corrupt uh, or, or representing sort of favoritism, right? We think, oh, the Iowa corn farmers are there trying to get the U.S. government to subsidize ethanol. For me, this programmatic lobbying, if it's, it's not necessarily the case that these demands are always good in the sense that like sort of the aggregate off the, the aggregate level that these demands are um, are, are pursued, right, with policy. Right. That everyone's going to be better off, or this is what the government should do. Either like, these programmatic demands should be part of a debate, which leads to some policy outcome um, that balances the interests of lots of different actors. Um, but what I'm going to argue is this programmatic demand making it much better than the alternative, which is the patronage version of representation. Uh, the patronage model of representation is where, the, is where organizations engage the much narrower form of demand making. What they're trying to do is they're, is they're really specifically trying to extract as much of these sort of discretionarily allocated programs from the government. The organization leader gives directly to members. Um, in this way, it's quite close. Or when, they, when organizations are engaging in this patronage representation, they are sort of converting into um, clientelistic machine, right? So a lot of work on Latin American politics looks at clientelism. Um, and my, his books are butts up against this literature on clientelism where I'm sort of saying, look, sometimes clientelism isn't just a party boss buying off the boats of individual voters. Oftentimes there's an organization which was like founded decades or years ago to do some totally different thing, right? To represent small scale corn farmers, agricultural policy. And oftentimes that organization gets sort of, um, wrapped up in this politics of negotiating with politicians for them to sort of deviate in, in an often illegal or informal way government benefits to the organizational leader who gives them to members to mobilize these members in campaign events or to get them to vote a certain way. So clientelism in, in sort of Latin America or specifically in Mexico in this form is often like the old style... Um, political machines in the United States in terms of like, how do you get your folks satisfied, but also make use of them for your political ends? And and you talk about the fact that the patronage sort of model is one that also has deeper roots um, in Mexico and Latin America more generally. As you say, it's sort of been categorized, categorized as clientelism. Um, but in this sort of post-transition time in Mexico, where does it sit with regard to the more economically deregulated state and the more sort of politically deregulated state with more party flourishing? Yeah, it's a great question. What has happened to clientelism through all of these economic and political transitions that I've been talking about? Um, yeah, so during a previous period in Mexico, clientelism was a huge piece of how the dominant party kept itself afloat. There would be a lot of sort of in the lead up to elections, distribution of largesse from the state, all sorts of all, all different politicians kind of would view state coffers as their campaign ways to buy out voters. Sometimes individually, right? Here's ten dollars, 
you know, make sure you go to the ballot, you vote for us. And there would be this, you know, scholars have depicted, journalists have depicted these really um, interesting variety of ways that politicians make sure that voters are following through on the clientelist bargain, right? They would send small children into the ballot box to look at the ballots and make sure they would ask people to, um, these either they have cell phones, they ask people to take a picture of their ballot. The politicians or the, or the brokers on the ground would give people a ballot that was already filled out and ask them to submit that ballot and then return the unfilled out. So there's, so there's, there have been these decades long sort of machinery or technology of vote buying and, and, and monitoring of, of the way people follow through on clientelistic bargains. Um, uh, yeah. So my argument is that clientelism becomes even, I think even more important in the post-transition period, um, in part because the sorts of corporate sectoral supports are no longer around, right? So before, if the pre could get the, it's it's sort of party affiliated labor unions on its side through all sorts of policies that were just good for workers, right? Labor policy and increase your wages, right? Today, if the state's not engaged in wage bargaining, but they still have the sort of party linked labor union or these sort of party linked peasant associations, they say, well, we can at least use them to do this much kind of smaller, more um, piecemeal clientelist sort of bargain, right? So what so what piece of it is with the decline of corporatism, I think clientelism becomes more central. You get a piece of it is now you get electoral competition, right? It goes from being a one-party system to this multi-party system um, where politicians arguably have more incentive to buy lots of votes because they're, they're, they're starting to stave off challenges from and and so in this in this situation where you have these two models and you talk about the fact in the book that the agriculture sector is one that is more in the patronage zone and that the small businesses have actually really kind of flourished in this programmatic model um which makes some sense uh, in terms of the kinds of demands that small businesses might be making and the fact that the sort of rural agriculture sector may be less organized in particular ways. Um, but at the same time, we sort of have this situation where the new on-the-ground Mexican reality is one that now has both of these models at work. So what do we do about that? Or what what is, what do we do about it? Don't want to be imperial here. What is Mexico doing? <laughs> yeah, so the, yeah, so there's, so, so, so things are teeing up the basic asymmetry. Um, and yes, the idea is, right, the reason we get sort of unequal political representation, the reason, the reason lower class actors tend to be underrepresented in economic policy, I'm going to argue um, is because the organizations that would be voicing their interests, that would be out there making demands on behalf of the poorest farmers or the or the or the urban squatters or the informal sector to the street vendors, those sorts of organizations are often caught up in this patronage politics. Right? And it's easier in lots of ways for organizations that represent middle class or even upper class actors. It's easier for them to sustain collective action, to sustain their organizational capacity without having to turn to the sort of Faustian patronage bargain. Um, so we have these two, I'll, I'll, one more thing I should say though, is importantly, it's easier for the middle-class sort of chamber of commerce to, um, to, to sustain active without patronage than it is for the small scale sort of peasant organizations to do so. 
but that's not fully determinative, right? Even an organization representing the poorest of economic actors can evade this patronage trap, as I referred to it, if they find some way to sustain collective action autonomously. This is really important for me, right? Because we don't want to say, well, just we should just leave poor people now out of policy taking altogether, because the only thing they ever look for is handouts from the government. That's the last thing I would want people to think from my book, right? But the question is, um, the point is there's this asymmetry which introduces really important challenges for the representation of non-elite uh, or sort of marginalized economic interests. And what can we do to sort of cheat them out of this patronage form of politics or, and, and instead sort of support a more programmatic form of representation for these actors whose, whose interests tend to be ignored? And and you do have you do have an an exception to the to what I don't want to say it's a rule, but what you found in your research that the small rural poor um, individuals or um, economic interests mostly are in this patronage system, but you have an exception where that's not the case. Can you talk about that particular example? Yeah, so this is one sort of noble case of the book, which which stands out as my success case. It's a confederation of organizations called ANEC, um, Asociación Nacional de Empresas Comercializadoras de Productos de Productores del Campo, right? So it's the association, the National Association of um, Commercializing Agricultural Producers in Mexico. You should. One of the things that I think my whatever my book is good for. I think I probably hold the record for the longest list of acronyms of any book that you've ever... It was very impressive. I was like, wow, okay, let's move on from then. <laughs> the first couple, first couple pages of the book, um, and, uh, and creating an index was quite a challenge given all those acronyms, the long-named um, organizations. Um, so this organization um, had a really... So they're founded in the early 1990s, and they offered... And they were founded in this model of operating agricultural cooperatives. So their their idea was, uh, we see that NAFTA is coming, right? We see that Mexico is is on its way to um, entering into much more liberals or globalized agricultural markets, and this is going to make it really hard for small scale corn farmers to compete. Right? We know that corn prices are going to go down. Um, we know that the 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 the, 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 the way in which it, you had previously sold your corn, it wasn't going to be available anymore, right? And it used to be that there would be these state-operated um, kind of silos that would buy corn, that would send trucks all around the countryside and buy corn from people, so often at subsidized pricing. That whole system was being torn down as part of NAFTA. NAFTA comes, in about, comes into effect in 1994. And corn farmers are going to sort of be thrown to the wild, right, to compete on their own. And the next says, let's set up a model. We'll sort of create a network of local cooperatives they're setting up a model to make it so the corn farmers can be somewhat more profitable so that they could keep growing corn in this new liberalized agriculture market so they they operate these drain these cooperatives right where corn farmers um bring together their products in a bank you know sort of storage facility and a representative of the cooperative then sells it at a larger scale when you have more corn to sell you can attract a better buyer you can get higher prices. Um, they were also able to sort of through the, the joint uh, economic activity of all the of all the members of these local cooperatives. Right, a typical cooperative would have um, a couple hundred farmers or so. Right, if they pool together all of their economic activity, they can get a loan from the bank, which allows 
all the different farmers to invest in their farms, build an irrigation system, diversify beyond growing corn. A NACB organization would bring in trainers to teach farmers how to use new technologies, um, new sorts of machinery, new sorts of inputs to increase their crop yields. So point is a NAC sets up a model where they're offering these really valuable services, these really valuable productive services that give people a reason to want to participate. Corn farmers join because they see, you know, they see their neighbors who have joined the cooperative and they say, heck, they're growing 10 tons per, per hectare. I'm only growing five tons of corn per hectare. I'd like to learn how I can grow 10 and it looks like if I joined the cooperative, I could do that. Right? And so um, this is a, this is what I refer to as sort of a more as an internally generated organizational capacity model. It's sort of a mouthful, but all it means is that the organization itself is offering these services that give people a reason to join and to participate. Um, and therefore the organization, it doesn't rely on this patronage politics as a way to give members a reason to participate. But there's, there is only one example of this and, and has, has, has it been examined and have other groups or areas, regions explored taking on a similar kind of cooperative uh, approach? particularly in the, in the Zerg agriculture system? There are, so there, there, there's quite a lot of cooperatives in, in, in Mexico of this type, right? It's it, sometimes they, they don't last forever, right? It can be difficult to keep people together. This is sort of a messy politics in this way. I'm really inspired by, by Eleanor Ostrom, who we talked to, who writes about co-production, right? Mm -hmm. And, and she says, this is sort of what, what they're, what they're kind of doing, right? They're, they're, they're it's kind of a grassroots bottom up solution. How do we, work together to set up a system that's going to work for all of us. And also where, where and when appropriate to engage with the state. So the state can provide certain resources that help this model or help this cooperative model work. And importantly, they're evading and sure that it's on state actors, right? It's, it's really important for a NEC for organizations like, like this to make sure that they don't enter into relationships as dependent where the state's going to start calling for shots and try to mobilize, um, the, these farmers for their own electoral purposes. Stop. Well, but, but, but anyway, one of the things that Ostrom says is, right, that this is messy. Co-production is messy. It doesn't always, um, there are sort of moments where it works really well and it solves certain problems and then these, these, these organizations kind of dissipate, right? And we just certainly need to be aware of that. Um, a neck. What's sort of important about a neck is this this national network of these cooper of these cooperatives. So there's lots of experiments throughout the throughout the territory of Mexico. A small scale farmers trying to join together and in, 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 in offering these sorts of services, offering a cooperative in these training programs. And the net and a neck is sort of the headquarters of Mexico City that helps knit together a network, offers some sort of advice and support for these local cooperatives. So ANEC, in a certain sense, is a, a better lobbying model um, that's not necessarily falling into the patronage chat, uh, trap, but isn't necessarily a chamber of commerce kind of model for Mexico. Yeah, so yeah, so, so, so I'm talking about until now is a lot of what ANEC does, or these sort of ANEC affiliates, the cooperatives that are affiliated with this network, what they do for their members. But 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 the argument the book, right, when you get to this question of interest representation, is that now that you have these members who are sort of in the fold because we're offering these really useful services, um, now the organizational leadership can turn, when it turns to the state, it can turn and start asking, representing small-scale grain farmers um, in a more programmatic way, right? Asking for these sorts of demands, the standard benefit the whole sector. 
because they're not stuck in this dependent relationship where they're just trying to get more of these um, subsidies, these, these, these social programs, more of these sort of one-off government benefits that, 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 that would be used in a clientelistic way. Um, to bring it to the to the to the small business sector, I actually what what constantly surprised me is how the extent to which ANEC and these sort of agricultural cooperatives were modeled after small business organizing. Um, in Mexico, business chambers. If I look at I look at the book of three major confederations of business organizations. There's the the Confederation of Chambers of Commerce, the Confederation of Chambers of Industry, right, small industrial firms, and another organization which is called Copartimex, which is sort of another small business advocacy um, organization. These are all organizations that are representing small and medium-sized businesses. So we're not talking about the business roundtable. We're not talking about Carlos Slim. And we're talking about um, you know firms, most of which have fewer than 10 employees. Right. Um, and these chambers are similar. They have sometimes they have a membership, which is often in the hundreds, sometimes in the thousands. It's a bunch of small business owners who have really specific interests. They would like to see better roads, better parking, better security outside their business establishment. Sometimes they would like to see the, the local government, like the city government, keep a wall from moving in because the Walmart's going to take a lot of clients away from them. They would like to see crackdowns on informal commerce or on piracy, the other sorts of things that they see as threats to their activity. Um, and these organizations would often describe this, the sort of chambers of commerce or other sorts of business chambers would describe their political activity as being sumamente politico pero apartidista, which means completely political but nonpartisan. Okay. Um, they do, in Mexico, right, if once you link up with a party, once you become sort of closely allied with the party, there's this big suspicion that you are going down this patronage path. You are sort of, what you're, what you're probably doing is promoting the electoral prospects of the organization leader who wants to run for mayor herself, um, and you're trying to funnel more bit, more money from the state to give to your members in the kind of corrupt, in part, uh, not sort of corrupt, unfair way, right? Where you're, you're prioritizing your members over the sector. And these chambers are working really hard to say, no, this is not what we're doing. What we're doing instead is um, we're acting on behalf of the sector. The way we do that is we don't link up with any political party, we don't engage in this patronage politics. Uh, we're going to... Uh, be an actor that's pushing for these policies that are going to benefit small business owners. Right. So it's policy demands, not necessarily partisan demands. So in the United States, we would sort of look at that and say, hey, that's, you know, that's deregulation or that's, you know, road construction, as you mentioned, but not culture war issues. Um, and so you're not sort of going into a partisan zone in that regard. Um and, and so what you've sketched out of the book is a kind of snapshot of what's kind of going on now in the post-transition period. But you're not necessarily sort of saying this is what's going to happen in perpetuity. Um, and is this also a kind of model for other Latin American countries? Or uh, is is Mexico or and, and some of this sort of fluidity in terms of how politics is operating with economics, is this the result of other models in Latin America that Mexico has been looking at? So beyond Mexico, um, the so there's two sides. There's two sides to this to this story. The first part, which I've been talking, about, which we've been talking about mostly, is the, is the organizational side, um, and 
I make a case, particularly in the conclusion of the book, that the organizational story, the story about how organizations generate organizational capacity, that this is something that is not specific to Mexico. This is a story that, that at least operates in, in, in other regions of, of Latin America and other middle-income democracies like you know, Brazil and India. Um, and I think we find really similar echoes in organizations in the United States and in wealthy democracies as well. What do I mean by that? Um, well, my book is sort of a call to look at the way that organizations sustain collective action. And I'm making the case that this, the way which they sustain collective action is going to have an important impact on their policy demands, the way in which they're engaging with the state, sorts of demands they're making in the way in which they're letting people. Um, I look at this sort of these small business organizations and these agricultural organizations, but there's a really similar story with the landless workers movement in uh, Brazil with uh, slum dwellers associations in India, right? We can sort of make connections to these organizations, the sorts of models that they set up, the sorts of services they offer to their members have important implications for relationships they form with political parties, the relationships they form with the state. Even in the United States, I think there's some really important parallels. For instance, Hari Han has done fantastic work on the Sierra Club in the United States, right? And one of the one of the key things that comes out of this work on the Sierra Club is the Sierra Club wasn't formed as an association pursuing the end of climate or so legislation to stave off climate change. The Sierra Club, most people who, who who approach it, particularly in its early decades, were looking for other people who aren't on hikes with them. Right. Local associations of organized hikes. This is this was a selected benefit. This was sort of a service that the Sierra Club offered to people. And having this um, way of welcoming people into the fold, having this service which gets people there, then gave the organization opportunity to sort of socialize people, to teach these people about, okay, you like going on hikes? You know what's going to make it easier to go on more hikes is if we make sure that we don't have, you know, strip mining. You know, they're all right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so this, this attention to the specific types of benefits that organizations are offering are offering to their members the way in which they've sort of mobilized their members behind narrower or broader goals. This basic intuition, I think, um, extends well beyond sort of the Mexican case and the particular sort of economic organizations I'm looking at. Now, in terms of the political parties, this is a um, this is a story that um, that hit, in a lot of ways my book sort of plugs into research on transitions in party systems in Latin America. And um, here I have to say I'm sort of somewhat less optimistic about the potential for present party systems in Latin America to offer to be sort of vehicles for programmatic representation. Um, at, at the end of the day, it's great for the organizations. I'm, I'm really interested in the ability of organizations to represent their members' interests, their programmatic demands. But if those demands are going to represent, are, are going to end up. Um, and they're bringing about policy change, programmatic policy change, right? So in Mexico, for instance, if Mexico is going to renegotiate NAFTA in a way that benefits small-scale corn farmers, it's not enough for a neck and lots of a necks to be banging on the door. Now, I think you need a political party, some state actors that, that want to work with a neck and other, right. and other organizations like them to design a new North American agriculture. 
so that it, you have to grow up essentially the the not only the organizations themselves that are representing these particular interests but it has to be connected in terms of scale to political parties political actors who are also in one voice advocating for something like a renegotiated NAFTA. Exactly, yeah. So if we've ever seen any important changes um, in policies that benefit, economic policies that benefit these sorts of actors, these sorts of knowledge economic actors, it's because there's some left-wing political party with an important base in these sorts of organizations, right? And that political party um, needs to have some interest in mobilizing, right? Labor, small-scale farmers, um, small business owners, the indigenous, right? That part needs to have some interest in mobilizing those, 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 those sorts of actors to pursue policies that are sort of broadly beneficial to sort of look for a new development model. This is the story. I think the big success cases in Latin America over the past few decades have been the Brazilian PT under sort of the first Lula period in the early 2000s, the MAS in Bolivia also in the sort of the first decade uh, um, of this century. The Frente Amplio, which is a, a political party in a very small country in, in, in the broad front in Uruguay. Uh, in the book, I started part of what the book does is it describes how the left-wing political party in Mexico, the PRD, wasn't as successful as those three other right. um, examples in linking up with these organizations in a programmatic way. So I sort of tell the, tell the story behind um, that political party. And I'm looking forward in Latin America. I'm not particularly optimistic, right? Present party systems of Latin America are much less uh, oriented around mobilizing economic actors beyond, behind economic demands. We're, we're seeing just as we're seeing globally uh, more and more sort of populist mobilization and, plural, and polarization uh, along kind of terms of uh, social identity that doesn't align clearly with economic goals. Um, and so that leads me directly into my final question, Brian. What are you working on now? So I've taken a um, bit. I love I, I love this book, right? I'm working, I probably shouldn't say, but I've been, the, the, this book, which just came out in summer 2022, um, I had been working on for, well, since 2010 or 11 or so, right? So over a decade. And I still like it, which I think could be a good sign. Um but I had one big dissatisfaction with it, which was that the the dependent variable, the outcome, the thing that I that, that I study is sort of being the the result of this process, which are these different models of representation. It didn't go as far as I would have liked. Um, what I really want to be able to explain is policy outcome. Why do we sometimes get policies that favor the interests of small scale farmers, and other times don't get policies that that, that, that favor the interests of small-scale farmers. And my second book project takes a more political economy approach uh, to address that question in particular. So what I'm looking at is um, staying in Mexico, and in this case, staying in rural Mexico, and then looking at markets for high-value agricultural exports. In particular, berries, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, avocados, tequila, and mezcal. Got it. And the idea is um, analyzing, it turns out these sectors are organized in really different ways. Right? The berry industry is completely dominated by transnational actors, mostly massive corporations that are based in California. They go down to Mexico to engage in contract farming, um, employ really cheap labor, exploit the environment, suck up all the 
groundwater, seed pesticides, cover the land in plastic um, so that we can eat raspberries year-round in the United States. The avocado sector, as, as sort of a contrast, is completely different, right? It, it continues to be mainly constituted by small, sort of medium-sized Mexican landowners who grow avocados and Mexican association that controls the export of avocados, right? So for me, is is how is it? What were the, what was the history, or what sort of the, the politics that made it such that the avocado sector keeps remains a place where a small scale farmer in Mexico can engage in the lucrative economic activity on their own, whereas the berry industry didn't offer that same opportunity. And you're also doing tequila and mezcal. That's right. Yeah. Um, if why not? Because why not? Extraurus is like, it sounds like a lovely brunch here. <laughs> There's a really similar story there, right? So the tequila, tequila event, so tequila is, 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 uh, is actually a type of mezcal, right? Right. Tequila is the type of mezcal that um, is regulated really strictly under some laws that came into place going back to the 1970s um, that, make it, that, that make the production of tequila very uniform in the very industrial life process. All tequila... Basically tastes the same. It's all made in basically the same way. It's made of these well, all the stuff that we drink is made in these big factories. It's made from the exact same species, agave, this sort of cactus, the succulent. Um, mezcal is the term we use to describe a much wider variety of different sorts of agave-based spirits. And the mezcal industry, which is which has sort of developed more recently, places a lot more emphasis on terroir, on craft, on these local producers making things at a very small scale and using ancestral forms of production. So there the question is, right, does this craft mezcal industry offer economic opportunity for, for these families that have been engaged in the production of mezcal for many generations, right, more so than the tequila industry, which has sort of now been bought up by Seagram's and other massive... Big, big in corporate. Yeah. And multinational. Um, well, I look forward to the next book. I hope you'll come and speak with me about it on the new books podcast. Um, and we can also eat avocados and, you know, have some mezcal while we're having the conversation. Um, I'd like to thank Brian Palmer Rubin for joining me today to talk about evading the patronage trap interest representation in Mexico published in 2022 by the university press of Michigan, university of Michigan press. I assume one might be able to buy this book at Boswell Bookstore in in Milwaukee. <laughs> uh, I I need to look into that. <laughs> so if you're in the area, you can check it check out Boswell Books for purchasing Brian's book. Otherwise, I guess the University of Michigan Press website. Yeah, and I should say the book is available. This is this is not good for my bottom line, but it is available, and the entire book is available as a free ebook, which you can find on the um on the website the webpage of the book at the University of Michigan. And I will include that in the blurb that goes along with this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today live and in person, Brian. Thank you very much, Sylvia. It's been a pleasure.